Blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Saranto Suchedo Yehulahudi San Miao San Putoshe. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now I've come to receive and hold it. Within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. Um, let's turn to the front cover of our text and recite the name of the Sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Get underway. Please take that very same sutra text, and if you will, turn to page 48 and 49. 48 and 49. And those of you who have been here the four months I was away are going to say, Hey, we have already covered that. And yes, you have. But it was not recorded systematically. And these texts are... Not only being lectured for us, but we're hoping to leave a record of the text in English. 
And there's a big gap if it wasn't recorded in those sections. So if you will indulge me, and it, actually it's a good thing to get to hear it twice. That's not a bad thing to hear it again. If you'll indulge me, I would like to go back to where we were when I left off. And those lectures by Marty, by Dharma Master Hung Chu, uh, Bhikshuni Hung Yin, the nuns of CTTB, those lectures that were not recorded, um, let's say they were good for the Dharma realm, they were good for, um, for uh, the living beings who were, had enough blessings to get to hear it. But for the sake of our series of recordings, if you don't mind, I would like to go over it again. And we will go, we'll take bigger bites. We'll go at a more rapid pace than I usually do so that we can try to cover those sections of text, which include the whole section on psychic powers and the whole section on the bodhisattva sacrifices to hear the Dharma, etc. It's a lot of text, but um, for the sake of our record later so we can have the whole sutra lecture without a gap. Um, I'd like to go back. So, page 48 and 49 is where I would like to start. It's the bottom paragraph in the Chinese and the second from the bottom in the English. Also, it's chilly tonight, and if anybody is feeling particularly cold, if you came up from San Jose wearing a t-shirt, you might be cold. So don't hesitate to grab a blanket. Nobody's going to look at you and go, sissy, right? They're going to look at you and go, oh, yeah, me too. I'm so cold. I just didn't want to admit it. So don't hesitate to, uh, to grab whatever you need to stay warm. Think warm thoughts. So we're going to read the whole paragraph. It starts with Pusa Roshi and do the two English paragraphs alongside. Pusa Rushi Chin Chiu Fo Fa. Pusa Rushi Chin Chiu Fo Fa. So yo Jen Cai Neng Wu Lin Xi. So yo Jen Cai Jian Wu Lin Xi. Bu Jian Dan 无有恭敬而不能行 over to the right, take a look. This is how the Bodhisattva... Let's read it together, all right? Instead of sequentially, let's all start together. Ready? Here we go. 
This is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma in his search. He does not cling to any of his treasures or wealth, nor does he see any object too rare or special to renounce. He considers truly special only someone who is able to explain the Buddha Dharma. Therefore, the Bodhisattva can renounce all inner and outer wealth in his search for the Buddha Dharma. He can show any manner of reverence. He can swallow any amount of pride. He can offer any kind of service. And he can endure any kind of pain and toil. What happens? We know that this is the third ground, the Bodhisattva's ten grounds, and the Bodhisattva has been looking at us, looking at living beings, and saying, boy, living beings are suffering a lot. And he went through that whole series where he uh, figured out in his mind, or her mind, this is gender non-specific, gender neutral language, the Bodhisattva was looking at her mind and saying, I need to know how to explain the Buddha's teaching so that people understand it. And the only thing that's going to make it hurt less for living beings who are suffering is the Buddha Dharma. Because that's the medicine for the illness. The problem is people don't understand it. How am I going to explain it so they get it? And his answer was, I need to learn. I need to learn the Dharma really well. So this is the third step of ten steps. And he's still learning. She is still learning. The Bodhisattva wants to learn the Dharma. He wants to learn how to practice it himself and how to explain it for others. Because that's what's going to make it hurt less. It's like a med student who says, boy, oh boy, um, I really believe that medicine makes the illness go away, but I don't know what what they're sick of, much less do I know how to prescribe the right medicine. So I'm going to go study medicine so I can figure out what's wrong with them, then learn the different curing, healing techniques so I can prescribe the right one. So it's very similar. That's where he is. And this, these two paragraphs are a summary in the text. This is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma. In her search, she does not cling to any of her treasures or wealth, nor does she see any object too rare or special to renounce. In other words, material things are not where it's at for the Bodhisattva. Most people um, cling to treasures and wealth, of course. That's how we define our value. Um, Today in the car on our way down to San Jose, I was explaining to our, our carload of Dharma friends that in Australia, where I've been for, for three months and uh, where I'll go back later, um, trades are still valued. If you work in Australia and you have a skill, if you're a carpenter, if you're a plumber, if you're a, a tailor, if you're a painter, that's a noble and honored profession. Many folks in Queensland, where I was, 
are self-employed. They are sign painters. And they drive their vans uh, around providing the service of painting signs. And their van has the name of their company on it. And that is considered to be a life's goal, is to have a skill for the community that you offer that requires your attention and training and then you go do it. That's that's a peak of accomplishment and then you go on and enjoy your life. And when it comes time to make money, you're a painter, you're a carpenter, you're a roofer, you're a uh, sheetrock person, sheetrock technician, you're a car mechanic. That's it. It's not that your value is determined by the size of your salary. And if you're wealthy, no matter how you got it or what you do for it, you're more important than somebody who's actually using their hands to make a living. Not a bit. That's not it. It's the middle class is strong and healthy in Australia. So it's very nice to see that. Um, here, in as I was growing up, if you were kind of a, a, a plumber... Plumber, you know, plumber. You you didn't really, you know, like say I'm a plumber. You say, I'm a plumber, like that. Uh, that meant that you couldn't do anything else. Probably you didn't graduate from some school. Now, PhDs are. <coughs> that was a real cough. <coughs> that wasn't a fake cough. Philip is here cutting out my mic so I don't cough in the mic. Thank you. So if you are a cough plumber. It's because you uh, probably, you know, didn't didn't get out to graduate from the right school or something like that. Not a bit in Australia. If you're a plumber, that's something you would seek and uh, be proud to, you know. Sons are proud to say dad's a plumber. So how nice that is, how different. Um, right now, as I said, we have, uh, I was reading the other day, a situation where PhDs are out of work by the, by the millions across the country. Um, it's, it's not the case that an advanced degree gets you a job at all anymore. So the middle class is gone in this country. Uh, we don't value labor from your hands as a way to, to spend your life. So, interesting. Um, the Bodhisattva here says, um, I do things to make a living, but that's not what my life is about. I don't define myself by my salary. I don't define myself by my car. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We have, uh, we are such a, a, a material market culture that people define themselves by their vehicles. Right? I live for my van. You know, nobody touches my van. My wheels, my wheels, you get your hand off my wheels. We are, we are externally focused in our North American materialistic culture. And you don't see it until you leave. I have to say, you get a whole perspective on who we are once you step outside of the shores and look back. Mind you, the whole world is looking at America. We are such a, a out-of-control um, consumer nation that we're too big for our own good now. That's another story but it's just, it's so evident when you're outside looking back that America is like a big bully 
in the in the classroom, a bully in kindergarten, and um, we're too big for our own good or for the good of the world. So the Bodhisattva says, "Yeah, yeah, um, I'm not my ride, I'm not my wheels, I'm not my stuff, I'm not my salary. I'm my value comes from something else, invisible things like what I know, my skills. I'm." I'm valuable in my mind, says the Bodhisattva, by my ability to help other people figure their problems out and then do something about it once you figure it out. That is to say, Buddha Dharma. That's what I value. Not um, the, uh, the size of my garage and what, whether I have two cars. Um, so this is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma. In this search, stuff doesn't matter. No object is too rare or special to let go of. Notice that. It's not that uh, he's accumulating stuff. He is letting go of stuff or she is letting go of stuff. He considers truly special only somebody who is able to increase his knowledge of the Buddha Dharma. So the Bodhisattva can renounce all inner and outer wealth in his search for the Buddha Dharma. How would you renounce inner wealth? What is inner wealth? Mm, muscle pain. The Bodhisattva continues when it hurts if it means that he's going to, by pushing out a few more reps in his uh, meditation, if you can get the analogy, the Bodhisattva will sit through leg pain in order to understand the Dharma. Interesting motivation. Now, the Bodhisattva's motive is he wants knowledge of methods that help end pain. She can show any manner of reverence to people in order to get the Dharma. She can swallow any amount of pride. Face is not as important as learning the Dharma. She can offer any kind of service to someone who can teach. She can endure any kind of pain and toil. It doesn't matter. Famous story, you know, the, the, it's kind of a classic story of seeking the Dharma of the hermit up in the mountain cave and the, uh, the seeker who wants to get that knowledge. There's, this is a great setup for Buddhist stories, right? I can think of two that are really funny. There's one that's funny. It's a joke. It's not the, it doesn't illustrate the point, but it sure is funny about the, uh, the famous hermit up in the cave and uh, he is so highly thought of that people are going up in droves there's just a line always outside the cave is way up high so the disciples decide to protect Shurfu by setting conditions uh, you can only ask a three word question no more than three words can you ask when you go and you have to apply and you have to purify and you have to put on a right robe and you know sign a release that you won't you know put a video of your interview on YouTube and things like that you have to really really buckle down and so the this this is an attempt to limit the number of seekers who are in line to ask wisdom of the guru up in the cave and so he becomes just a legend you know this this is the guru of the age you 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 can get an answer to your question but you got to make it a three word question it's all you can give 
So one day outside the, uh, the office where you make your application, this old white-haired lady shows up. And she's obviously from New Jersey. And she's, you know, she walks with a cane, but she's sincere. She says, yeah, she says, I, I got to ask my I got to speak to him. And they said, but, you know, it's really hard up there. You, you, you sure you can? Yes, I'm sure. Just tell me what I have to do so I can go up and ask, say what I have to say. And so they said, well, boy, should we talk to me? Let her, you know, she's pretty old. You know, it, Okay, well, she see. okay, so here's what you do. You purify, take the bath, and you put on the white robes, and we'll show you how to make the obeisance and how to bow. And she says, all right, whatever it takes, I'll do it. So they prepare her, and she's got the white robe on, and she's learning how to bow. And so she pays the fee, and, and she signs the forms, and she goes up. Sure enough, everybody's impressed because this old lady is like, you know, really motivated to see the guru. So she... Climbs up to the top, and, and this is her moment. And she comes in, she bows correctly, and she kneels down. And everybody's waiting to see what she says. She looks at the guru and she says, "Sheldon, come home." She says, <laughs> "As I said, that's a joke. That's not the you know." <clears throat> now the real one, the real one. There's a guru up in the cave, right? And there he is, and we know about that. And he's uh, very hard to get to see because he's way up high. And there's a rich man. And the rich man has decided he's seen through wealth. He's, he understands that it's uh, temporal. You can't take it with you. And so he's determined to get real wisdom. And He's, he wants the best guru. So he looks around and he's so wealthy that he can, he can find the best one. He's got good, inform, good information. He uses a variety of search engines to, to figure out where the best teacher of the age is. And so he finds the one, the farthest one, the top of the mountain. And he's sincere. I mean, he really wants and He's got good roots. And so he uh, renounces and trains and he's meditating so he can, he wants to really benefit from what he hears. So he's ready. He climbs up and, oh, it's hard. It's really hard to get up there. He has to get hungry and he has to, you know, there's no shelter for the last mile. And he's up there and he bows and, and uh, he notices that the monk is sitting like unmoving. So he, he's there waiting, and he waits for a day, and he waits for two days, and he waits for three days, and finally the monk goes, opens one eye, and looks at him. Um, what would you like? And the rich man goes, Oh, Venerable Sir, I have been seeking your wisdom for as long as I can. I, I'm ready. I, you know, they say when the... When the Disciple is ready, the teacher appears, and now you've appeared, and I'm just, I'm so hoping that you will give me wisdom. Well, the Sangha, with great virtue, out of compassion, for the sake of this, you know, he bows, he requests Dharma, he does it really. And the monk is sitting there. All right? So what's your question? He says. And the guy gets him from him. 
Teach me deep wisdom. I'm ready. So the monk goes, Do no evil. Cultivate all manner of goodness. Purify your mind. That's what he said. And the guy sitting. His face gets red. And his lips get white. And he says, Do no evil and do all good and purify your mind. He says, Three-year-old kid could tell me that much. I've climbed all the way up here, and that's all you're going to say? No. Yeah, a three-year-old kid could say that much, but a 60-year-old fart like you can't do it, he says. And that's, that's the story? You want to hear a third one? I'll tell you a third one. Okay, there's this hermit up there. That's it. That's, a, that's the true story. And you all saw that one coming, right? I know so. True. So, this bodhisattva will renounce anything on his search, in his search for wisdom. And occasionally he gets teachings like that, which, are, you know, it's a profound teaching. But it sounds so ordinary that we run right by it looking for something more profound. And this bodhisattva is looking for wisdom. There is no amount of toil that he will not do if he knows he can get wisdom. True. The, the Chan stories, the, 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 one, the stories that we all love, that are collected, are often about the um, unusual circumstances that the teachings finally come down in. And the, uh, the ones that are famous in the Chan school have to do with the, the seeker, uh, you know, even leaving home, giving up his or her hair and possessions and relationships and wealth in order to seek the Dharma. And they look for the best teacher and they find him or her. And they make themselves ready to learn. And they find themselves doing something like carrying water in a bucket or piling stones on a hill and then finding out that it was the wrong hill once they're all piled up and they have to move the stones to another hill. Or they wind up cleaning latrines or they wind up pounding rice in the kitchen, you know, uh, doing something very menial and very repetitive and very mind-numbingly boring and doing it for a long time. And, of course, the stories go, and you've, you've read them and I've read them, I love those stories, that if the person who is assigned these menial tasks develops wisdom, they realize that not a bit of this is wasted. And it is the proper, unsurpassed, wonderful dharma if they don't wake up, if they don't have that wisdom, they bounce off. And the ego sets in, and the face gets upset that after all this work, they've been given something pointless to do, repetitive. So it's the, that is the teaching. It's right there. And the bodhisattva is able to do all those things 
no matter how boring, no matter how meaning, quote, meaningless, how trivial it is. Because the point of it is what? The point of it is to get past the me and the mind. If you can get past the me and the mind, then, as they say, chopping wood and carrying the water, carrying water is the profound dharma. There's no difference. So, here's our bodhisattva uh, looking for the teacher and then buckling in to the to whatever task is given to him or her in order to uh, get the dharma. Um, Master Shrenhua was an expert in rubbing people the wrong way. Anybody ever rub a cat's fur backwards? You rub a cat against the grain and they don't like it for a while and then they let you know they don't like it for a while and they go whack and smack you with their paw, you know, and let you know, stop that. And cats have, cats' buttons are very visible if you've ever lived with a cat. They, you know, everything is cool and they're just very mellow until you hit one of those buttons and then they're, you know, rubbing their fur the wrong way is one of those ways. Master Hua could do that with different people instantly. He could press your button and rub your fur the wrong way. And he would only do it if you were a, a disciple who had committed to being around. Right? If you were there for the long haul, then he would teach you. If you were still uh, experimenting, testing whether you wanted to commit to it, he wouldn't, you would see him, but you wouldn't, he wouldn't give you any attention. Once you had kind of decided that you'd made the Bodhi resolve, that you wanted to wake up, then the teachings would come. And one of the ways that I was taught was to be ignored. Um, after I started talking again, after three steps, one bow, and six years of silence, I was kicked out of the nest, you could say, the way uh, the mother bird knows when the baby needs to spread its wings. And I had been with Marty, with Hong Chao, for six years, completely um, cared for by him. And I didn't speak, and he would speak for me on my behalf. And there was a point at which that got a little old, I guess the last year or so, because uh, I could see him doing things, printing books and, and going out, and I was sitting back in the monastery meditating, waiting for the opportunity to speak Dharma, you know, and couldn't, couldn't do anything except sit there. And uh, I started to chafe a little bit at, at having to constantly be the silent partner. And because we were in Vancouver and, um, you know, doing the work of building a monastery in Canada, Gold Buddha was where we were sent to start it out. We were the first monks there. And at that point, Master Hua sent me to Calgary and Marty back to City of 10,000 Buddhas and he sent me to Calgary and stopped talking to me. So I was not only pushed out of the nest, I was cut off from contact with him. 
And the monk who was there enjoyed daily phone calls from the abbot. And any time I would pick up the phone, and it was and it was Shrivel, he'd go, get the other monk. <laughs> Here, it's for you. And I wasn't allowed to contact the teacher. I couldn't talk to him for six months. And that was hard. That was really hard. That was pushing my button and rubbing my fur the wrong way. And it wasn't that I didn't have a good teacher. It was I had a good teacher, but I couldn't talk to him. No teachings. I had to figure it out myself. I was suddenly responsible for mistakes, and I was uh, suddenly uh, rewarded by my, you know, I had to figure out myself whether the goal of cultivation was to get praise and attention from the teacher or whether it was to actually cultivate for myself. How much of it did I really believe? Was I... uh, seeking to be number one disciple, suddenly the rug was pulled out from under me and I had no way of judging whether I was number one or number last because the teacher wasn't giving me any feedback at all. And that was a huge reality test because I realized a lot of my cultivation, a lot of my motivation to that point had been to draw near Master Hua and get his praise and to just seek from him because that was what you did when you had a powerful teacher like that. Was I really looking for truth? Was I looking for Dharma or was I looking for a relationship with the charismatic teacher? Big, ugly question for somebody who had been doing B, right? wanting to draw near the teacher. So, <coughs> excuse me, when you have a good teacher who knows how to make you grow, um, he will do so even when it's very uncomfortable for the student. In psychotherapy, they call it um, not termination. What do you call it when you stop the therapy, when you're you separate the therapist from the, from the. Anybody know what's that called? There's a process. Disassociation. Disassociation. No, not it's, it's close, but it's you're you're about to end, and the the good therapist has to get you independent again. It's there's a name for the pro, that part of the process, where you yes, what's it called? Termination, I guess. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Terminator, right? You're terminated. I think that's what, that was my first guess. Something like that, where your, your therapy is about to end. The good teacher knows when that is ready, but it's, your, it's just that, it's not that your studies are over, it's that you need to start putting cause and effect into work for your, into process for yourself. Um, I said earlier, it's like the mother bird pushing the baby out of the nest so he or she can spread their own wings and learn to fly. It felt like that. So, um, a good teacher knows when. And at the time, for one, one thing was Calgary was the end of our universe. The end of the Dharma realm was Calgary, our monastery there. It felt very far from San Francisco. 
and Master Hua would come up twice a year, right? And that's it. The rest of the time, you were up there in Alberta, and uh, it felt kind of like the borders, the, the boondocks, the, at the uh, as far as you could go to be and still be part of the community. Um, Hong Kong is is has that feeling right now. Sixing Si, our monastery up on Lan on Daiyushan, that's pretty far away when you're out there on that mountaintop. Uh, but and Calgary has kind of come into the a little closer to San Francisco. However, at the time that was far away, and to be out there and not able to have that sense of Shifu having you on the radar the way you often did if you were uh, physically closer. What I didn't know at the time was that he was monitoring me very closely because I had earned that silence from him. It was that he was, that was the next step in my training was to begin to operate independently. It was that he figured I was ready. But at the time, it sure felt like alienation, abandonment, big issues. And it was my button. The, the question was, what did I really think I was after? You know, had I made the Bodhi resolve at all? So, anyway, good question. And... I certainly appreciate the Bodhisattva here in the Sutra saying, I need to find somebody who can explain the Dharma for me. He is looking, she is looking for the Dharma because there are living beings who need to hear. They're suffering a lot and they're sick. He's the doctor with the medicine, but he knows that he's still learning. He's still a student, he's still a medical student, not a doctor yet. So the Bodhisattva needs to hear more Dharma. All right, do we, we clear on where this is? Now we're on page 50, please turn over. I'll read the Chinese and then we'll read the English together. You all want to join me in English here together? Hearing even a single phrase of Dharma that he has not heard before makes him happier than getting precious jewels enough to fill a large threefold thousand world system. Hearing even one verse of right Dharma that he has never heard before makes him happier than getting the position of wheel turning sage king. Hearing even one verse of Dharma that he has never heard before and that allows him to master the bodhisattva practices, surpasses becoming King Chakra or Brahma and remaining in that role for hundreds of thousands of eons. Okay, there's a pattern. 
And it's hearing even one verse of Dharma that he has not heard before. That repeats three times. So our Bodhisattva is out here finding teachers, going around listening to Dharma. And he finds them. They speak Dharma for him, her. And he gets some fresh teaching, some fresh information. He gets even a phrase of Dharma that is new and it makes her very happy. And there's three comparisons of how happy the Bodhisattva is to get that single sentence. Happier than getting precious jewels enough to fill a sanqian daqian shujie. That's a, um, a, a phrase for a universe. A, th- a large threefold thousand world system. Master Hua would always go through the pattern where he would say there's a world system, there's a thousand world system, there's a large thousand world system, and there's a large threefold past, present, and future thousand world system. That's a, a measure of a large universe. And <clears throat> if you had enough jewels to fill one of those universes, that would be a lot of jewels, a lot of treasures. The Bodhisattva says, I would rather hear a single sentence of Dharma than get that many jewels. Okay? The second analogy, the second example of how happy he is to hear a single sentence of Dharma is, and this is called Fa. The first is called uh, Fa, Dharma. This is right Dharma, proper Dharma. Hearing that makes him happier than getting the position of a wheel-turning sage king. This is the Chakravartin, the um, king of the heavens closest to the human realm. Right above us is the four the heaven of the four kings. And those four kings are called chakravartins, wheel-turning chakra, wheel-turning king of heaven. Now, they're actually um, chakravartins that are not gods. Sometimes kings among humans can be chakravartins, wheel-turning kings. Um, the ones we hear about most are the ones in that first level of heaven. And they are bronze, copper, silver, and gold chakrabartans, four different levels going up. So to become a god who has that kind of power, who gets the seven precious things, the seven jewels that kings get when you're a god, that's a nice rebirth. That's a really pleasant rebirth with lots of power, Lots of authority, lots of uh, blessings. And anybody would want to be that. The Bodhisattva says, no, thank you. I'd rather hear a single sentence of Dharma that I haven't heard before. Please. If I had my choice, that's what I want. So that's the second. The third one is, the Bodhisattva says, I would rather hear a single sentence of Dharma that I have not heard than to be King Chakra or King Brahma and staying there for hundreds of thousands of eons. That's what I would rather have. So by comparison, the Bodhisattva says, give me the Dharma instead. Now, who is Chakra? Who is Brahma? They're the next levels of gods going up. So don't give me birth in the heavens. Give me the Dharma instead. I'll be a beggar. I'll be a monk or nun. I'll be a totally faceless, powerless um, 
loser in the standards of society. But if I can hear the Dharma, I want it. That's what I want. No status, no title, no stuff, no privilege matters to me as much as learning how to speak the Dharma for folks that lets them wake up. That's what I want. Okay, so let's put a face on it. Who in your daily life impresses you as being somebody who's, we say, got a clue? Somebody who really has a clue. In the last 24 hours, 48 hours, have you, in your daily rounds, met somebody who, when they speak, you go, yep, you're right. That's where it's at. I hope so, right? Let's hope so. Who would it be? Is it somebody in public sphere? Is it like, when I was growing up, it was always who? Walter Cronkite, right? At the 6 o'clock news. Tam is shaking his head. Walter Cronkite was not it. He didn't do it for you. Who is? It? Who would it be? Was it Harry Reasoner? Right? Was it a newsman? A new? Why a newscaster? For one thing, they're in your living room on the TV every night, and they're delivering information to you. We call it news. That was a power role, wasn't it? Walter Cronkite was kind of the guy who was more people tuned into him across the country. So he was one of our first personality newscast- newscasters who became bigger than his job. Walter Cronkite, um, he's interesting because he's a Scorpio with a Pisces moon. <coughs> so am I. <coughs> So I always identified with Walter Cronkite. And my mom would have been satisfied if I had become Walter Cronkite. Not a monk. But Walter Cronkite had that quality of believability and integrity. He was the one who said, we have landed an astronaut on the moon. And he's the one who said, our president has been shot. And there was a whole generation where the important news came out of Walter Cronkite's mouth. And more people tuned in to hear him than any other newscaster to date. You know. So, he was the guy who brought you the news. Who in your life today has that role? Is there anybody? Maybe it's grandma. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's your best friend. You know. Maybe it's... Um, where do we get our information? I have a hard time getting the lyrics of hip-hop. And I know there's a generation that does not. It's not my generation. But when I listen to hip-hop, and I do, because I, I value that mode. Um, spoken word poetry, also. When I was growing up, spoken word poetry didn't exist as a medium, as a form. But... When I hear it, I'm impressed that that we're listening to it. Hip-hop has gone worldwide. There is French hip-hop. There is Taiwanese hip-hop. There is Korean hip-hop, rappers. And I strain to get it. I, it's like, it's going too fast. You know? 
So where do you get your, who is able to deliver to you what you would consider dharma that hearing a sentence of you would give up everything else for? My dangling participles there. Dangling prepositions. Think of that. That's really important. The Bodhisattva has people where he goes just to listen. All right. Okay. Now, let's test it out. The sutra, this is, people who say the sutra is philosophy? No. The sutra is not philosophy. This is real life encounters with people, genuine people. What happens? Ruo 加时三千大千世界大火满中何况人中诸小苦恼。Okay, can we read together over on the right-hand side? Here we go. If someone were to say to him, I have a phrase of Dharma spoken by the Buddha that can make perfect your bodhisattva practices, I will give that phrase to you, but only if you can dive into a big pit of fire and feel truly horrific pain. At that, the Bodhisattva thinks this way. Since with a single phrase of Dharma spoken by the Buddha, I can make perfect my Bodhisattva practice. If the large, threefold, thousand-world system were filled with a massive fire, I would even be willing to throw my body down from the peak of Brahma heaven and thus take on all that pain. So, how much the more am I willing to jump into a small fire pit? To seek the Buddha Dharma, I should be willing to undergo all the sufferings of the hells. How much more the small vexations in the realm of humans? We need to add a, the closing quotes. We lost our close quotes there. So, a conversation ensues. The Bodhisattva has established that he or she is about hearing the Dharma. Doesn't matter what it takes, that's what I want to do. And so, now let me point out that from the Ten, Grand, from the ten Practices chapter, now into the Ten Grounds chapter, there's a pattern that happens, which is we get the the setup, and then there's a test case. It's like a little vignette. It's like a little um, play within a play to illustrate the principle. 
Now, what is the principle? The Bodhisattva wants to hear the Dharma. The Bodhisattva will give up anything to hear the Dharma, says the setup. All right, comes the test. And here's our test. Somebody at that point says to him, I have a phrase of Dharma that the Buddha spoke that will make your Bodhisattva practices reliable. You will get to be the doctor you want to be. Your surgery will be safe and effective. Your medicine will work. When you hear this Dharma, I'm going to give you that phrase, but there's a condition. You have to dive into a pit of fire and suffer a lot. Sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Sounds like, mm, you have to suffer, says the, the, the tester, the hypothetical individual who's here to give the test. The Bodhisattva, now the sutra takes us into the Bodhisattva's mind. How neat the way the sutra does it, right? This is psychologically alive. This is real stuff. The sutra says, all right, given that test, which is something most of us would go, no thanks. I think I'll skip the fire pit today, thank you. I don't want to, I'd rather be outside the barbecue, not in the barbecue. Right? Don't burn my body. The Bodhisattva does not say that. The Bodhisattva says, Since with a single phrase of Dharma the Buddha speaks, I can make perfect my Bodhisattva practice, comma, if the entire universe were filled with a massive fire, I would be willing to throw my body down from the highest possible place I could find, the peak of the Brahma heaven, and thus take on all that pain. So, you bet I am willing to jump into a small fire pit for that dharma. To seek the Buddha's teaching, I would be willing to undergo all the sufferings of the hells. How much more? The small vexations in the realm of humans. Yes, bring on the fire pit, says the Bodhisattva. Okay, now, time for the disclaimer. Kids, don't try this at home. The sutra is not telling us to throw our bodies into a fire pit. All right, now I have to say that, just to be sure, because somebody might take this out of context. You know what they're talking about in that monastery on Saturday night? Physical mortification. We knew it. We knew they were extremists. We knew that they were out there to mortify the flesh. There, see, this is why those monks are immolating them. No, no, not, not. All right, just to say, the sutra is telling us what? All the examples, as I say, the Ten Practices chapter and the Ten Grounds chapter, in these little playlets, in these little skits, in these little vignettes, the bodhisattvas go to extreme to show us, by comparison, where we're at, which is pretty puny by comparison, right? The Bodhisattva is willing to endure any amount of pain, should it be necessary, in order to get the Dharma. By comparison, we don't have that kind of value system. We basically, you know, the sutra wants us to understand, don't sacrifice much at all 
In fact, we tend to hold the Dharma at arm's length. In fact, we tend to run the other way from the Dharma. How much the less do we run towards it with open arms, willing to let go of things that other people would hang on to for dear life, right? So it's teaching by example, by extreme example, where we're at. It's a mirror. The sutra is a mirror held up to show us, you know, the Buddha Dharma is really valuable. Do we recognize it? Do we know how valuable it is? Here's the Bodhisattva who says, anything, I'll give anything to hear even a single sentence because if I learn it, I'll be able to say something to my mother to get her to wake up, to my husband, to my wife, to get her, him to wake up. That's what I want. Now, the Bodhisattva, understand, at this point, has made vows to devote his or her life to waking people up. So that's the phrase, right? Living beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Afflictions are infinite. Even though they're infinite, I'm going to put an end to them all. Methods of practice, Dharma doors, are countless. I'm going to learn them all, even though there's no end to them. The Buddha's way is the most difficult, the highest practice. I'm going to master the Buddha's way, even though it is. Right? These are the vows the Bodhisattva makes. It's not simply words. They mean it. They mean it. All right. Today and tomorrow is Buddha's birthday as practiced by Tsuji. Tsuji, as people know, is the Taiwanese social service disaster rescue educational and cultural organization from Taiwan. They are founded by, their founder is the Bhikshuni Zhengyan. Master Zhengyan is their, their founder. She's a Buddhist nun, Bhikshuni. She's um, alive in Taiwan. Tsuji has been around for 40 years. They're very wholesome in the things they do, and they demonstrate a remarkable spirit of service to the whole planet. I won't go into it because that's um, a story for another time, but we have been working with Suji for years. When we did the concert for Japanese disaster fundraising, Japanese disaster relief fundraising, we partnered with Suji. Many of you were here for that. Um, we have I've been lecturing to their young people for a decade plus now, and working with them because they're nuns and they don't have any sangha outside of Taiwan. So I'm kind of the, have been the, the uh, sangha elect, the, the stand-in. Now, with more of us here in the monastery, we've expanded. We're all Tsuji, a surrogate sangha. We're their stand-in for Master Zhengyan. It's a good thing, because we just show up, and they're very happy to have monks and nuns to look at. So... <clears throat> Her story is worth telling 
because it gives the spirit of this bodhisattva in the sutra. Master Junyan was, as the story goes, an illiterate rural Taiwanese nun. She illiterate simply because she didn't have an opportunity to go to school. But she had a heart. And in her Taiwanese mountain town, she showed up one day as a nun at the clinic and saw a pool of blood on the floor of the clinic. And she asked, as she walked by, what happened? And the clinician, I forget, don't know who it was, said, oh, it's not important, it's just an aboriginal woman. Well, what happened, said Master Johnny. Well, she was pregnant and uh, didn't have the money for the uh, required treatment, and so she miscarried. And it's no big deal, was the answer. And that's what the blood is. Master Jungian said, that's horrible. That cannot be. On the spot, she made a vow. She said, as a Buddhist nun, I have not left home simply to hit a wooden fish and sing at funerals. I am going to do something about the situation of access to medical care in Taiwan. I'm going to build a hospital for people like this woman who couldn't afford medical care, who was denied medical care because she couldn't afford it. And of course, everybody went, ha, 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 big talk, ha, 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 who are you to say something like that? Well, she is now on her fifth hospital and provides free medical care for anyone, including members of our own community. And anybody who cannot, if you can afford it, you pay it. If you can't afford it, doesn't matter. You get the medical treatment you need, all the way to hospice and cancer. And in in the process, they have found a cure for leukemia. They've established bone marrow donors database that's now gone worldwide. They have done incredible things because she simply said, I am going to devote my life to this. What a light, what a spirit. Um, the, the, the role model for Mahayana Sangha in Asia, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have seen many of the monks in, in the Mahayana in China, and by and large, they are distinguished by their money-raising ability. They're, it's hard to, to meet a monk who is distinguished by his cultivation. Mind you, nobody advertises it, but it's hard to find one. There are lots and lots of very wealthy Buddhist monks. But I haven't seen a single monk who impresses me the way Master Jung Yin does. She has genuine accomplishment based on her willpower by the quality of her heart. She has brought into being this incredible organization called Siji. That's admirable and inspiring. And I just today, taking part in the Buddha's birthday celebration, watching the volunteers of Tsuji uh, process, just watching them walk by with flowers in their hands, you go, gulp, something's going on here.
this is good, you know. So that's inspiring. Being a, becoming a rich monk doesn't inspire. It's not where it's at, you know. But that kind of renunciation does. That's personal opinion, but I, that's my story. The Bodhisattva here says, you want me to jump into a fire pit from the highest peak of the highest heaven? I'm your monk. I'm going to do it. If you will give me a sentence of Dharma, that will put the last piece in the puzzle. So I look at it and I think, oh, I recognize that landscape. Yeah. Now I know how to cultivate. Now I know what to say so my mom will stop being depressed. Now I know what to say so my mother will start to cultivate on her own instead of vicariously cultivating through her kids or not cultivating at all. Now I know what to say so my best friend will stop drinking. So my relatives and kin will stop eating meat. Now I know what to say. Why? Because you have got that piece, that, that sentence of Dharma that allows you to, oh, you know what I was doing all this time as I was meditating? I was trying too hard. I was pushing. I was meditating and watching myself meditate at the same time. Am I enlightened yet? Am I enlightened yet? Am I enlightened yet? And it was that question, am I enlightened yet, that kept me from getting enlightened. As soon as I stopped asking that question and just sat still and really did the method, instead of doing the method and asking if I'm doing the method correctly, I just did the method. And suddenly the wheel started to turn. Who knew that I was holding the handbrake on the car of my cultivation all this time, asking myself if I was, how fast I was going. By asking that question, I was holding the handbrake. And so, of course, my brakes were hot and there was a smell of burned rubber around me. I swear, I have been sitting next to monks where you smell like burned rubber, you know, or gunpowder in the air because they're cultivating so hard. All you smell is the heat, none of the light, you know. Just relax. And when they do, it's like, oh. Suddenly there's hum as the vehicle goes down the road instead of often it's too much instead of too little and they're mounted the same thing they both keep the car from rolling so that's not true for everyone but when you find somebody who's trying too hard you know right when you find somebody who's trying to starve themselves into enlightenment right I'm going to get enlightened by not eating. Because that's what the monks do, isn't it? No, it's not. Not the ones that last. And people who say, oh gosh, the monks eat one meal a day, so I'm going to eat one meal a day too. And they get afflicted and they start to blame the Dharma. See, the Dharma doesn't work. You know, I knew it all along. Right? No, eat. Feed your body. Then transform your mind. So, it's easy to get it almost right, but miss that piece that makes it all wrong. And the Bodhisattva says, give me one sentence so I can make it work. And the hypothetical person says, sure, here it is. But you have to throw your body down in the fire pit. No problem, says the Bodhisattva. Okay. Now, hypothetical. This is a, a test. 
to show us how the Bodhisattva's values are structured so that we can look at our own practice and go, I don't really give up a lot in order to hear the Dharma. I kind of take it, you know, and then think about it and forget about it until next Saturday night. So, how do I compare? That's what the sutras here is giving us a standard by which to judge our commitment to truth. What a what a lesson for me who was clearly cultivating to get praise from the teacher, not to wake up. Looking for fame instead of the real thing. So we're going to uh, do one more paragraph tonight. Okay, and it's just four sentences. Here we go. I'll read it and then we'll do the English together. Pusa Rushi Fa Qin Jing Jin Chou Yu Fo Fa Ru Qi So Wen Guan Cha Xiu Xing. This is how the Bodhisattva musters his strength and gets vigorous in searching for the Buddha Dharma. Then he contemplates and cultivates in accordance with the teachings that he hears. All right. The Bodhisattva musters his strength and gets vigorous in searching for the Buddha Dharma. Then he contemplates and cultivates in accordance with the teachings that he hears. There's a lot of decision making that goes on here. The Bodhisattva has has said, I've got to work in applying what I've learned so I can change. So he seeks for the Dharma. But then when he hears it, he goes, that's it. That's what I was looking for. That's what I wanted to hear. Now I've got it. I have to put it into practice. Now I'm going to actually do it. The Four Noble Truths, the first one says, things will not satisfy. Satisfaction does not lie in externals. That's the first Noble Truth. It's not the truth of suffering. Well, yeah, it is. Truth of suffering sounds really pessimistic and negative and somehow, you know, self-flagellating. If it doesn't suffer, it's not the Dharma. If it doesn't hurt, it's not the Dharma. That's not true. That's not true. What it says is, the First Noble Truth says, things in the world fall apart because they are made up of other stuff. There is nothing in the world that will not ultimately go bad and decay and disappear. And because we attach to things, that hurts. That's the first noble truth. First noble truth of suffering says everything made up of conditions will go away at some point. We suffer to the degree that we're attached to that stuff, which is essentially totally attached, like our bodies, like the planet. Right? The planet itself will go away. Did you all see the new data from Guatemala, was it? Or Colombia, right? The Mayan calendar does not end December 22nd, 2012. Did you all see that? This is the latest big earth-shaking research released today, or this week. 
researchers went down to, is it Guatemala? Where, does, where were the Mayans? Somewhere in Central America. And bandits led the researchers, or pushed the researchers, into a, a temple area that, for some reason, they hadn't researched before. And they found three out of four walls of an old temple intact, covered with calendar carvings. They, this didn't happen this week. It, they did it two years ago, and they just released their findings. They read the inscriptions, said, this is astronomical calendar data. You know, there it is. They wrote it down. And it takes the end of time into the future. That the calendar that people were misrepresenting and saying, oh, it ends. This is the end of the planet, end of time. The new genuine Mayan calendar doesn't end this year. And when they released this, this uh, report, lots of people were, number one, disappointed, interestingly enough. Right? And two, it, it showed a lot of people how, how our thoughts have been clouded with this notion, how negative our thoughts have gotten that this is the end. The end's come. end times are, new, are, are near. And there are people going, wait, 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 Edgar Cayce said the same thing. Wait, 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 Nostradamus said the same thing. Wait, 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 other astronomers have said, you know. So it calls into question all of our assumptions that we're actually in our last year, last months. And it puts it right in your face because a lot of us have been going around, I won't speak for you, many people have been going around thinking, yeah, this is the end. Some of us, and the sooner the better, you know. <laughs> Can't wait till it ends because it really sucks now. You know? So, is that you? Have you been like thinking, uh, kind of letting that cloud your thoughts that this is really the end coming? Eh, maybe. So, you can't use the Mayan calendar as your excuse anymore. It doesn't end according to the Mayan calendar, says this new research. How interesting, right? That that's... Have I been, like, kind of holding my breath, thinking that this is my last year? Interesting. So, that was the, the latest. So, the Bodhisattva is looking at his thoughts, her thoughts, saying, I am looking for the truth. So, I'll drop the other shoe. There I was in Calgary, cut off from my teacher. <clears throat> what happened? Well, I saw the other two monks who I was living with able to talk to, the, to Shurfu, and I couldn't, and I got jealous. And I had never experienced jealousy before. But here was one monk talking to the teacher and smiling at me. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to sure, but you're not. You know. And he did. He did that. And I'm going... 
And I felt this green, coppery bile flavor in the back of my throat. The color of jealousy is green. And it's associated with the gallbladder and bile. I swear, it rose in the back of my throat. It tasted this bitter, that horrible, you know, when you kind of get dry heaves, that flavor. When nothing from the, there's nothing left in the stomach, but you're still vomiting or gagging and that green stuff, that's bile. It's, you need it to digest, but it's not supposed to come back up. It's supposed to stay. That's the flavor of jealousy. And I couldn't believe that I was feeling that, but I was. Because this guy was getting something I wanted and I thought I should have, which was contact with the teacher, because that was what I'd been cultivating for. Sure, was praise, thinking that I was going to be number one monk, right? And that was hugely humbling. And I think Shurfu cut me off from contact so I could take a really good look at that. Because if he had been talking to me all the same, it wouldn't have come up. And I had that in my heart to, to get rid of. So what a painful, skillful device, right? put me in a situation where I can't get something I really want and needed in order to justify myself as a monk. Praise from the teacher. Didn't get it, and I, the other monk was getting it, and I wasn't, and I was jealous. What a shock. And I told him, I told Shurfu one day, I said, Shurfu, I'm just feeling jealous. This is before he cut me off. And no, when did that happen? Oh, when he, uh, there was a visit. When he came up and asked me, how are you doing? I'm sure I'm feeling jelly. And I thought he would say, oh, I'm glad that you see that now. Now that you can admit that, that's really proper. What did he say? You're jealous? That's affliction. What's wrong with you? He increased the pain, the fire and the blast. Now he's jealous. Not only that, you're cultivating for fame and you're jealous to boot. He made it way harder and I thought why did I say anything in the first place I should have just kept it myself no he wanted me to get rid of the jealousy and that's the way he taught he taught tough love and he was so good at it because I wanted to get rid of the jealousy bad I didn't and the way to do it was to ask myself why was I cultivating in the first place I hadn't examined my true motives, which were largely to get praise from the teacher, to be famous. Chou Ming, it's Chou, it was what, the third of the six guidelines. Seeking, seeking reputation as a real cultivator, as a famous monk, as the best, you know. Not for the Dharma, not for truth, not for ending birth and death. I hadn't seen that. And who knew what's, you don't know what's in the depths of your mind until a teacher helps you sort it out. And it is not fun to face your genuine shortcomings, you know. But what a skillful teacher who uses the simplest of methods to get you to look at yourself, which is deny something that you want. Don't reward the person and see what comes up. And I had committed to being a monk and to live there, but I didn't think that I was jealous until he showed me, in fact, that was right there. And so, six months, no contact, except this bitter, blasting, you know. 
which is not pleasant. And you think you want to talk to me? I'll talk to you. <laughs> oh, aversive conditioning. That's tough to think you want the teacher to pay attention to you. When he does, he scolds you. Bitter. You know, it's like grabbing fire. I thought I wanted to stick my hand in the fire, but it burns. So, all right. And so I endured it and just really looked at and experienced many, many lonely, quiet nights and days meditating and looking at myself and thinking, what am I doing? What's it all? Why doesn't it, you know, and so forth. So then, after, at a certain point, I had just kind of resigned myself to the fact that I was going to have to figure it out. I was going to have to figure out what I was doing. What was it about? And I remember having that thought. What is this about? And the other monk, that he was, I didn't like him very much as a person to begin with. That's neither here nor there. But he was loving talking to the teacher and putting it in my face. And at a certain point, I just thought, that's his affliction. He's the fact that he's getting, he's scoring points on me by talking. It's like, that's not it either. That's not cultivation. I don't care. I remember having that thought. It's like, all right, I got to figure it out. Whether or not you, you're happy to get something, you know, uh, it's not my, I can't pay attention. I can't pay attention to that and actually figure out the source of my pain. The pain I was experiencing was greater than the, than the small points he was scoring. And if I paid attention to him, it was going to hurt worse. So I had to pay attention to myself. When I had that thought, um, we went to a place called Golden, British Columbia, just across the, the Alberta border. And we had an auto accident and I broke a rib in the process. And the, uh, I won't give the details, but I wound up um, in serious pain lying on the floor of a Greyhound bus because I couldn't sit on the seat all the way back from Golden to Calgary, which was an hour and a half, nearly two hours, moaning and groaning. And it was now midnight, and I'd broken my rib about 10 a.m. And we arrived at the door of Abhatamsaka Monastery about uh, 3 a.m., and I, they had to carry me inside because I, I couldn't move. It was so painful. And as soon as my foot hit the threshold, the phone rang, and it was Master Hua. And Sri Fu said, Guo Jun, he said, don't worry about it. He says, I've already called a doctor in Calgary, and there's somebody coming to pick you up. He'll take care of you. You'll be fine, he said. And this is before I said, uh, Sherpa, I had an accident on my rib. No. He told me what he had done before we had called him. He said, don't worry, it'll be fine. And it was such a kind, caring, and how did he know? Nobody called him. 
he had set up an appointment in Calgary with a doctor. All we had to do was drive 20 minutes to find him at 4 a.m. And it was like, it was, I felt better immediately. You know, once he said, it's okay, don't worry, it's fine. You know, so we drove into town and this doctor was a really good Chinese doctor. I had no idea he was there. He used Yunnan Baiyao and, and treated my ribs. And the next morning, I, was, I woke up and half of the pain was already over. And I felt well cared for. And from that day on, Shifu was calling me every day, telling me you know, what to do and the next step. And he ignored the other monk. He, he talked to him, but it was like... Not, it wasn't, there was no more fuel for the jealousy, right? And he talked to him, but not, you know. And so I realized that I had, I was being taught about my jealousy using the the situation, whatever presented itself, you know, to get me to look at my mind. More importantly, I was being taught to find a genuine motive for cultivation, not what I had been looking for, which was not going to help me in birth and death at all. You know, so what a skillful teacher. And I didn't have to throw my body from pit of fire. All I had to do was break a rib. And it's fine. Kids, don't try this at home. The monk in Berkeley said, no, 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 no. Okay, there we go. So let's transfer the merit here. We'll continue next week with the the next uh, turn of the wheel of our Bodhisattva's search for the proper dharma. merit by making a wish. The It's on the back of your sheet there, or it's the last song in the songbook, which is in front of you there.
Great.